in the future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Monday, February 7th, 2022. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop Live. Yes, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. And Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards and from across the country. And you know, on Fridays, you know, we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics as part of our Friday politics roundup. And check it in the Wednesday show with Cyril Michaleko. Cyril is a progressive columnist from the Bucks County Courier Times and the Intelligencer. And now also the Bucks County Beacon. He joins me to drill down to the Bucks County, Pennsylvania international politics. We just recorded our uh, Wednesday show earlier today. Uh, so that we released that on Wednesday. I'm very, very psyched about that. Uh, I think you'll enjoy that one. Um, it's good to have Cyril back in the seat. And you can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You know what? I'm going to cross Spotify off that list now. How's that? <clears throat> I'm going to replace that right now as we speak. Um, we'll do something else. Uh, Spotify is, uh, yeah, I'm going to take that off the list. Anyways, you can help support the show by becoming a patron for as little as 5 bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. You can also help out the show right now by heading over to our YouTube channel, you know, if you're not there already, and smash that subscribe button, like the stream for the show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time we go live. You can hit up our Discord server um, by clicking on the link in today's show notes. And if you're looking for more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook, or subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcast. Head on over to the ricksmithshow.com for all the latest across all his platforms. And you got to absolutely check out season two of the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. Yes, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, Rocky House. And they know where the bodies are buried. Just make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus and subscribe to their podcast at Anchor, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave Spotify off of theirs too as well. And attention gamers, The Game In, that's with two N's, The Game In is a Quakertown-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they got everything from retro N64s, latest consoles, video games for all platforms, loads of collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, and kids get, you know, discounts when they do good on the report card. How can you beat that? Check them out on their Facebook page, follow them on Twitter at, at The Game In, that's with two N's. Got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message and drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. A special shout-out, as always, goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at SongadayMan. That's with two N's and at SongadayMan on Twitter. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, as you probably can already hear in my voice, I'm just a little bit off tonight. I'm um, not quite sure kind of what it is exactly, but... Uh, you know, it's uh, it's been one of those days today. A uh, little bit of the weather, a little weird weather today. You know, we had 
freezing rain in the morning and then it turned to snow where I'm at and it snowed. It looked beautiful for about, you know, an hour or so. And then it turned to rain. It got mucky and I don't know. Just been one of those things. And it's also just been kind of one of these days in the news. I mean, I don't know about you, but holy cow, it's like Monday, you know, and, uh, you know, it just got me, you know, thinking about a lot of stuff and worrying about a lot of stuff and, you know, just trying to figure out kind of where to go from here and blah, blah, blah. All sorts of possibilities. Like I said earlier today, we had a great uh, Cyril and I recorded our Wednesday show today and uh, that'll be up for you. I'll probably have an early release for patrons and um, be up for everybody on Wednesday. Um, and, you know, just you yeah, these are really positive conversations, but also kind of reflect, you know, allows you to kind of reflect on the weight of where we're at right now. And uh, just kind of makes you think. And then on top of all that, right, it's been one of these uh, scheduling weird things where, uh, you know, this every once in a while, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the feast or famine thing, although that's a little bit extreme and dramatic. Um, but uh, like, at, you know, in November, November, October, November, December, um, it was, uh, you know, it was kind of purposely not scheduling guests some weeks because uh, it, there was it was just rapid fire. And I had, you know, lots of scheduling going on. We had more guests than we had time for. Um, it, it was just it, it was it was something else. And then the start of the new year. Um, just have these, you know, you just kind of run into this once in a while. The, the people that you're reaching out to either don't get back to you, don't respond to emails or things like this, or uh, just you, the schedules haven't worked out quite yet. So, you know, it's been kind of one of those kind of weird kind of week and a half too as well. And I think it's also my own kind of mindset has uh, uh, been kind of colored by, you know, the beginning of the semester at Cookstown University and the weight of uh, – just like another freaking semester of COVID. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I was talking to my daughter at dinner tonight and, um, you know, she said something to me that just kind of uh, make, make, made my kind of heart sink a little bit. You know, she's like, I'm having, she said, like, I'm having a hard time remembering school before masks. Right. And she's like, I'd like to say I'd like to get it back to normal, but I don't even know what that would B, I'm not sure if I remember that, you know, and again, I, you know, I know that, you know, we talk more about it. So there's certain things. Yes. But, you know, that's the, that kind of sits with you. And um, and, you know, it's like that, too, as well, at, at you know, on campus. And then, you know, going back for the semester and then, you know, just kind of somewhere down the road, we're going to talk we're going to talk about this um, on the podcast, but um, not right now. Um, but, you know, just some kind of weird stuff going on in our campus uh, that just that drives me crazy. Um, and, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Anyways, so tonight, you know, uh, you got things that you want to talk about. I'd love to hear what you got to talk about. You got things in the news that are popping up. I'd love to hear from them. Um, I, I'm just kind of looking to turn in, you know, seeing what, you know, like I said, it's been a crazy news day. Um, I was going to go with some other things and I was like, man, just look what's happened today. Um, I'm reading some really kind of cool books right now. And so I thought I'd just, you know, give those shouts out to those, um, and so on. Also want to give a huge shout out to, uh, Amy connect. Uh, Amy was my guest host on the Friday show this week, uh, the Friday politics roundup. And, uh, we dug in on, um, the right for bucks organization and, um, 
the she had attended a meeting for it was an open meeting, uh, open Zoom meeting for Right for Bucks, and um, just to kind of see what it was about, you know, I mean, because kind of like you hear about these, you know, you hear about these organizations, you hear um, about stuff that's going on, and so they had an open meeting, so she decided to check it out, and um, holy moly, you know, it's uh, it was something. Uh, she was she was a great guest. Love having her on. Uh, we're gonna have her back on in a couple of weeks. We're gonna talk a little bit more about some of these kind of um, kind of guaranteed income or basic incomes experiments that's going on. Um, that kind of came up in uh, a couple of our discussions um, about the experiments taking place in Philadelphia. Uh, Amy's done some research on that, so she'll be back on the show too as well to talk about that coming up. And I think that, you know, fr I've had a couple questions about this. So, you know, frankly, we'll, we'll see what happens if Sean's going to be able to come back on the show or not. Like I said, he's got a scheduling issue with uh, his uh, his work calls on Friday. And um, there's, you know, there's only limited times which we both have um, space open. So hopefully he'll be able to come back on the show. Um, I can urge you to, you know, get on Twitter and urge him to come back on the show or urge him to uh, find space at his schedule. Um, I'd, I'd love to have him back on. You know, I miss talking to him on Fridays. But I think that um, for now is that I might I've been thinking a lot about this this past week. And this is just, I, I don't know why I'm starting with this, but um, I think a lot about this this week that um so what we're going to probably do and we'll try to bring in some kind of some rotating guest hosts on fridays um and then maybe even doing versions of this show with interviews um on friday mornings too as well um so we're going to kind of be playing around with the format a little bit in our friday show and um and that's for kind of like several reasons um most notably that you know um i've had to change up things since uh sean had to change his schedule so um, there it is. But anyways, 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 um, if you haven't, if you have not checked out our last show, um, on our Friday show, do check that out. Um, again, this is about uh, Amy, you know, kind of fills us in on, um, the organization, right for bucks. I should have said this here. It's from, it's Andy Meehan's organization. He's this kind of like right wing Republican that wants to kind of take over the Republican party and turn everything into, you know, the America first Trump agenda and so on. And, um, it was a great conversation in part because it underscored how important, it is to understand how organized these folks are, right? These are not just a bunch of crazies coming out and kind of like sloganeering. They're actually kind of thinking about um, the organization it takes to kind of achieve power. So that's why this is a big deal. And so I guess I had that in the back of my head today too, um, as I was thinking about tonight's show and as these all these different news stories were dropping. And, you know, specifically looking at, what just happened with the Supreme Court tonight? I mean, like literally like 45 minutes before I started recording this um, the decision that came down um, from the Supreme Court about um, Alabama, uh, voting rights in Alabama, basically. So I'll just give you this piece um, just to kind of the teaser, if you haven't seen it already from The New York Times. Um, this article from the New York Times by um, Adam Liptak says uh, the Supreme Court on Monday reinstated a voting map for congressional elections in Alabama that a lower court had said violated the Voting Rights Act by diluting the power of black voters to elect their chosen candidates. The vote was five to four, with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the court's three, quote unquote, liberal members in dissent. The Supreme Court's brief order, which included no reasoning, was provisional, staying the courts, the lower court's decision while the case moves forward. The justices said that they would hear Alabama's appeal of the lower court's ruling, but they did not say when. 
If the court follows its usual practices, it will schedule arguments for the fall, making it likely that the 2022 election is conducted using the challenged map. The court's eventual ruling would clarify and perhaps further limit the reach of the Voting Rights Act. In a concurring opinion, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, of course, joined by Samuel, Samuel Alito, said, quote, The state order does not make or signal any change to voting rights laws, unquote. It was necessary, he wrote, because the lower court had acted too soon before a coming election. So there's a, a bunch of notable things about this. Um, so just so you're, everyone's clear, there was, uh, just like everyone, you know, you have to, all the redistricting is taking place right now. Um, the updated voting rights, our, our voting maps are taking place, congressional voting maps are taking place um, as they do every 10 years after following the census. And um, in Alabama, they, of course, um, are do have a legislature that's dominated by Republicans, and they are gerrymandering maps to ensure that it um, cuts down on the impact and the power of black voters, you know, by splitting their districts or concentrating them all in one district, um, and thereby, you know, giving two districts to other white folks, things like that. Um, the classic reason why we had um, you know, this this preclearance process um, in the Voting Rights Act. This is precisely what got shot down by the Supreme Court um, in a previous ruling. Right. So previously, that kind of move on the behalf of Alabama's legislature to kind of gerrymander um, the congressional districts and dilute the black voting power would have had to have been approved by federal, you know, um, by the federal government. Right. Because there's a history of disenfranchising like African-American voters, people of color. So um, there, but of course, the Supreme Court said, nope, sorry, that's that's illegal. You know, everything's fine now. That was back then. This is now. We don't need it anymore. And now we're seeing exactly, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know already, but now we're seeing the results of that. We're seeing Alabama doing precisely what it had always done, right? And we're seeing other states, some who used to be covered by the uh, um, Voting Rights Act or, you know, the preclearance provisions. Other states were not all doing the same thing. Right. And this has been one of the big stories. Right. This is why it was so devastating that uh, 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 Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema decided that they wouldn't get rid of the filibuster in order to pass voting rights legislation. No, because they decided that, you know, there's this made up thing called the, uh, you know, the filibuster where all you have to do is kind of, you know, decide that you don't want to, you don't have to argue for it or anything like this, like it used to be. But, you know, it's not in the Constitution or anything like this, but they decided that was the sacred thing, right? The filibuster was too sacred. We have to have super majorities in the Senate so that who knows? that everybody comes to some compromises? I don't know. And we know in past the filibuster was used extensively at first, right? Or not at first, but when it first started getting a lot of use was to prevent civil rights legislation. And now here it is again. Except this time you have two Democrats, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, who basically uh, said, uh, oh, Alabama, you want to kind of uh, disenfranchise black voters? Go ahead. And so that's what they're doing. So that happens, right? The other thing that I wanted to point out here that I thought was really interesting in what Kavanaugh and Alito said, because I think that this is, we're going to see this kind of language in their decisions moving forward. 
and the mainstream corporate media is gonna is not gonna know what to do with this stuff because it's going to sound reasonable, right? So when Kavanaugh and Alito basically say the state order does not make or signal any change to voting rights laws, it was necessary because of some technical reason, right? Because he acted too soon before the coming election. Too soon. The the new maps were just drawn. Right. So we, it seemed like appropriate. Right. New map maps just drawn. Boom. We need to take care of this right away. And they're like, no, 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 that's too soon. We have to wait till after there's been harm. They didn't say that directly, but that's what they're going to say. So we have to let the process work. And in the meantime, precisely as it says in this article. Right. That's going to mean that the election is going to be conducted most likely in 2022. The midterm elections are going to be conducted using the map that disenfranchises and limits the power of black voters in Alabama. Kavanaugh went on to write, say, when an election is close at hand, the rules of the road must be clear and settled, Kavanaugh wrote. Late judicial tinkering with election laws can lead to disruption and to unanticipated and unfair consequences for candidates, political parties, and voters, among others. Never mind if the tinkering of the congressional maps has unfair consequences for candidates, political parties, voters, amongst others. No, no, no. Only when someone flags it and says, wait a minute, there's a violation of the Voting Rights Act. That it becomes a problem. So, I mean, this is just, I mean, this is classic. We're going to see the same kind of, mark my words, we're going to see the same kind of logic, right? The idea like, well, like, we're really not kind of like limiting this kind of thing. We're just leaving it up to the states or, you know, this is just, we have got to see how it plays out. We don't know if this is going to have a negative impact. We're going to see all that kind of stuff play itself out, you know, and the good old stenographers in the kind of some of the corporate media will kind of look at that and say, well, it sounds like reasonable and it's true. We don't know. We can't tell the future. So this side says this and this side says that. Who knows what's true, right? I mean, that's kind of like the kind of journalistic integrity that we've lived with for, for way longer. And, you know, even though we saw there for a while where there was a, this really moment in kind of, you know, in journalism, um, in mainstream journalism, where they had to contest with dealing with someone like Trump, right? Uh, especially in that first year. When really had to kind of revisit what kind of journalistic ethics were, what it meant to be of the kind of fifth estate, what it meant to be, you know, fourth estate. <laughs> There's another. That's the whatever. Uh, what it meant to be the, uh, you know, the 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 institution that was supposed to hold power accountable. And they said, well, you know, maybe this the way that we've done this kind of like both siders stuff has not really doesn't really work right now because one side, the Trump side is crazy. And they lie all the time and they're saying things that are hurting people. So they had to kind of maybe dig in and decide that, no, maybe, you know, journalism needs to be biased in favor of democracy. Journalism needs to be biased in favor of democracy if we are going to have anything, a democratic journalism that's worth its name, period. And that's small d Democrats. I mean, just talking baseline stuff here. And here we see a direct assault on the foundations of, like, democracy. And I, I you know... 
worry that we're going to see a problem. Even in this piece in the New York Times, right? It's a, it's a, you know, it's a pretty, it's a reported piece, right? So it's kind of like the decision has just come down. And so it's just saying, hey, this is what just happened. And this is what it says in the dissents. This is what it says in the opinion, right? There's not a lot of kind of like, you know, like analysis and third party, fourth party, you know, experts coming in and kind of weighing in on this. There are in a couple of places, but you know, that's, it's news just broke. So meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, right, of course, we're, we've got our own kind of map of Palooza happening here. You know that there was a, well, here, I just, this just, you know, again, this kind of came out today from Spotlight PA. <clears throat> um, from uh, Kate Huang Pu. A spotlight PA. And so here's her, her kind of leading piece on this. It says, an appellate judge has recommended that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court adopt congressional map passed by Republican-controlled General Assembly and rejected by Governor Tom Wolf, citing its legislative approval and how it reflects the GOP's geographic advantage. Right. This is rich in so many different ways. Right. So. Well, let me read a little bit more. So a uh, Commonwealth Court judge, Patricia McCullough, selected the map from among more than a dozen proposals submitted by Wolf, top, top legislative leaders, citizen groups, and others as part of an ongoing lawsuit over the highly consequential district lines. McCullough was set to pick a final map before the state Supreme Court accepted a request to take over the process and asked her to instead make a recommendation the high court is not required to follow McCullough's counsel as it prepares to hold hearings on the map. The justices can pick one of the proposals, alter them, or draw a different map. Right now, if you remember about this, uh, uh, Sean and I talked about this a while back, and you know, Sean was of the mind at the time that uh, you know the Supreme Court is ultimately going to draw the map. They're not going to choose among these things, but we shall see. Right. Um, the map was originally drawn by Amanda Holt, a noted redistricting advocate and former Republican Lehigh County Commissioner and championed by Representative Seth Grove, right? You know, that champion of democracy that he is. He's a Republican out of York. The original map was amended after Republican members of the House and State Government Committee, the panel that first considered the proposal, complained about divisions in their counties. This goes on. Now, McCullough, Republican, presided over two days of hearings for more than two dozen proposals. So here's what's getting set up, right? So you have these, all these proposals coming. We're going to accept all these proposals, and the Commonwealth Court is going to pick one of them, right? And what McCullough is basically saying, the advice that she is giving the PA Supreme Court, is that, well, because the Republicans, who have complete control over the process, pass this map that is in their favor— she doesn't say the end of their favorite part because they passed it. That's approved by the legislature. So that gives it more weight than these citizen groups or these groups over here, or this group over here. So that's the one that should be accepted. House Speaker Brian Cutler, again, a Republican out of Lancaster, right? Um, we're saying that, uh, I guess, a majority leader, Carrie uh, Bedenhoff, they must have released, yeah, they released a statement that says, this map prioritizes the constitutional obligations of creating congressional districts in a nonpartisan way, using only data sets that were necessary to create compact and contiguous districts and promote communities of interest and respect Pennsylvania's national geography. That's what they say. 
and then nice piece in Spotlight PA follows up. While the Pennsylvania Constitution has no explicit requirements for the state's congressional map, the courts have embraced neutral criteria like keeping district populations equal and minimizing county and municipal splits. Judges are also using relatively new tests like the efficiency gap, which indicates the number of wasted votes in each election or the number of votes that don't contribute to a candidate's victory to contribute to the partisan fairness of a map. So in other words, right, if you have a district that is split like, you know, 52 to 48 Democrat or Republican, right, there are very few wasted votes in that, right, because people, you know, it's a contested election. If you have a district which is 80-20, you have a lot of people voting in that district that are just like, they didn't need to vote. I mean, it's like, it's so much overkill, right? That's when you kind of pack a district with, you know, one party or another in order to, min, you know, to maximize the impact for the other party. And, you know, basically you think about it like this. If you take all the kind of say, you know, you take the most democratic district in the state, right? And, you know, in many cases, this happens to be also high concentrations of black minority voters, college students, right? All that kind of stuff. But and you basically you draw the line in such a way that puts them all in one district. So a candidate in there is like, you know, a Republican doesn't even need to run in that district, right? Because there's there, there's no way in hell they're gonna they're gonna win. But the reason why you pack them all in other district is so that means you make you make two districts that are surround it that are dominated by the other party, right? That's, you know, part of that process. So anyways, so that's what they mean by this, this kind of efficiency um, thing about the wasted votes. So anyways, and so um, this is from Justin um, Valeri, executive director of Draw the Lines PA. This is a project of the Good Government Group uh, Committee of 70. Um, they said of McCullough's ruling, quote, I think it's a reading that places more value on land than it does people. Right. So you might have seen some of these maps that have been circulating online that are not the congressional maps, but basically show where um, the population has been shifting in Pennsylvania. And literally, you see the southeastern corner of Pennsylvania has gained a significant amount of population over the, say, the past 10 years. While as the rest of the state, Commonwealth, the rest of the Commonwealth has lost population. Right. So if I'm if the purpose of democracy is to make sure that the majority of people. Right, not like topographical lines, but people. Are represented. Then, the you know, the congressional districts need to follow the people. What the Republican maps have tended to do is that when you look at the map and the color breakdowns in the map, right, they can look like the more evenly distributed, right? But that's because in some of those districts are completely empty of people or have minimal numbers of people or have decreasing amounts of people. It's the same principle of what happens in this in the U.S. Senate, right? We have every state gets two senators, right? So we have some states that get two votes in the Senate 
that have populations that are less than many cities in this country. The comparison was always brought up with Washington, D.C., right? Washington, D.C., right? Unrepresented, does not get voting representation in the House and the Senate. But what happens? So they they don't get that. They're disenfranchised. But the population of Washington, Washington, D.C. is greater than some states in the nation. So you have a geographical bias, right? You have a rural bias. You have a land bias instead of a people bias. Right. And as we know, democracy means rule by the people, not rule by acres. And this is the, you know, the kind of stuff that's that's coming, becoming more and more clear to people as they start to revisit these institutions. We look at the Supreme Court, right? Same thing. You have a court that is dominated. You know, this is this is great. Dominated by justices who are appointed by presidents who got a minor or got a yeah minority of the popular vote. Right? So yes, Donald Trump won the electoral college, but he got blown away in the popular vote. And yet he appointed three justices. That's disenfranchisement in Supreme Court. That happens in the Senate, and that happens there. And so what we have in Pennsylvania right here is we have this one judge, you know, who's basically saying, you're going to give us the suggestion to move forward. Now, as Sean has said in the past, um, you know, on the show, is that uh, most likely the Supreme Court is actually just going to redraw the maps. But, you know, we shall see. We shall see. So that's another one of those fun little bits of uh, things that happened today. Now, the other thing that has been... I have just been watching and reading about in fascination has been what's happening in Canada. I know people have been following this very much, but um, Ottawa, which is, you know, the capital of Canada, Ottawa has been shut down now for 11 days. There's um, these protests. There's these protests against mask mandates, against vaccine mandates and so on. Um, and, you know, the same kind of stuff that we're having here on our far right, right? Except, you know, you don't expect this in Canada, right? I mean, Canada, like, you know, all the people kind of get along out there, right? You know, they kind of, yeah, they have their differences and all. But, you know, again, that's an American perspective or whatever. But um, truckers, um, so basically these things got kind of launched, right? When Prime Minister Justin um, Justin Trudeau um, kind of put in a uh, a vaccine mandate for truckers, right, who were coming to the United States, or you know, they're coming back into Canada. And so the idea is that you know, look, you know, you have these truckers who are going over to the United States. The United States is kind of like crazy. It's got the highest death rate of any country, um, like any you know developed country on the planet. And has no COVID protocols and so on. So you want to make sure that that's not then therefore spreading into Canada, right? So they didn't say shut down. No truckers are allowed to go for it. No, no, Joe. But if you'd be going back and forth, you'd be transporting goods. Also, you need to have that. You need to be vaccinated, right? So if you remember what happened with Biden, you know, Biden was trying to kind of say that, okay, you need to have a, a vaccine mandate that um, in, in companies. This is kind of along those same lines. So that began these protests. These truckers started showing up. Um, in Ottawa and protesting um, and demonstrating against these um, these uh, vaccine mandates. 
right? And of course, that snowballed very quickly into, you know, not just vaccine mandates, but masking and social distancing and any kind of COVID protocols whatsoever, right? And they're, you know, surprise, surprise, you know, what's their main cry, right? What is, you know, what's the protest for? Is freedom, <laughs> right? It's because these truckers refuse to get a vaccine and they want their freedom, right? Now, the crazy thing is, uh, well, here, let me just read you a little bit from them. This is from, uh, this is also from the New York Times. Um, well, actually, here, let me read you this. This is from the uh, the Washington Post. The Washington Post has got a, a this literally just kind of went up seven minutes ago. <laughs> this is how crazy this day has been. Um, uh, or there's an updated uh, audio one. I'm sorry. This went up about uh, an hour ago, um, shortly before you went on here. So this is uh, from the Washington Post. Canada's capital is long used to hosting protests. But the self-described freedom convoy has been an unusual and intimidating presence in Ottawa since it rolled up nearly a dozen days ago with its snowballing list of grievances from opposition to vaccine mandates and lockdowns to antipathy toward recently elected Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Big rigs and other vehicles continue to block crucial downtown arteries, snarling traffic, blaring their horns and fraying residents' nerves. The protests have had the effect of forcing several businesses to close because of safety concerns. National monuments are now fenced off after protest de uh, protesters desecrated them. And in a surreal scene, a man on horseback trips down the road in front of Parliament on the weekend, waving a Trump 2024 flag in Canada. Really? This is really, I love that. That was like your opening two paragraphs, right, of uh, this Washington Post story. What's fascinating to me about this is like, well, okay, look, people have the right to protest, right? Protest peacefully. Um, you know, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to poo-poo direct action, okay, at all. Um, but you think about what, how there is this interlinked and international connection among right-wing organizations. And what's, if you start looking at some of the reporting, and I, probably, we're probably going to follow up this on Friday, but uh, if you look at some of the reporting about the the money lines, there, there's these kind of um, um, several different kind of like, like open accounts and people are kind of funneling all sorts of money into these protests, right? And they're international, like you're getting kind of donations from people all over the world um, from these kind of kind of right-wing funders and these billionaires and stuff who are all in this kind of like, you know, autocratic kind of Trumpy kind of um, mindset when it comes to COVID and when it comes to freedom. Um, and they're funneling money into this, right? In order to kind of keep this turmoil going, right? Um, and there's this podcast, oh, I, I meant to bring this up beforehand. There's this podcast that, uh, Amy connect kind of told me about, she, uh, shot me a message this week and was telling me about, um, here, let me see if I can bring it up real quick. Um, I'm just, I'm just drawing a blank. I was literally just thinking about it before, um, before I got on here. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Oh, it's called verified, right? Um, and the verified podcast, it is an NPR, um, NPR podcast and, um, they're, 
the new season of this is focuses on extremism, the kind of you know extremism networks that connects the January six actors to these international um, international context. This um, kind of white supremacy stuff, extremist um, kind of donors and protest networks and so on. And so I've listened to the first couple episodes on that, which is which is really really interesting. And it kind of points to what a lot of kind of research has been following, right? It's like looking at there's this kind of now global kind of interconnectedness um, of these kind of right wing extremist groups. And so that money is funneling into these Canadian protests as well. The, the crazy thing about this and this I came across this one article that was that was talking about it. Um, hold on a second. Um, th this article that was talking about it. And um, what they said is that, you know, there was uh, several people were puzzled initially because they're, you know, Canada doesn't have the kind of extremist media environment that we have here in this country. And there had been several attempts to launch, you know, kind of right wing networks like OAN and all this stuff. And of course, this, these, a lot of these are, are on the Internet, so you can access them on the Internet. But there isn't that kind of media culture, right? You have the kind of, the, you know, um, the CBC, um, kind of like the BBC over in, you know, um, in England. And that has kind of been a phenomenal kind of, um, you know, uh, news organization, kind of um, public, public news organization and so on. And. So, you know, people were kind of, well, where, 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 you know, how are these flames being, you know, like fanned? And of course, a lot of it's social media, what we all going to say here. But the remarkable thing is, is that, you know, they trace a lot of this stuff back to people's consumption habits with Fox News, because even though Fox News is not broadcast and not, doesn't have the, the, the legs in Canada, right? Some people subscribe to different cable companies and satellite programs who get that, right? So they're watching U.S. News following this and using that and applying it back to what's happening in Canada. <coughs> It's crazy, right? So that verified podcast, I would definitely check that out. It's uh, it's super good. Um, it's it's super good in an NPR way. Let me put it that way, right? Because it's uh, you know, it's it's telling a story to people kind of people who are largely uninitiated to um, kind of the depth of this kind of extremism. For those folks who've been listening to this podcast, been following Raging Chicken for the past several years, um, this is not going to be news to you, but they do a really good job of kind of teasing out um, these networks. So as that podcast is launched and then, I, I, you know, I'm also reading this book right now. I'm almost done with it. It's uh, it's called Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. It's by Kathleen Bellew. Um, and uh, it's it's really excellent. Now, th this is not about the um, the present. Right. This is about um, kind of the, the the rise of this kind of white power militant movement that kind of follows the Vietnam War. And why this book is so is so excellent is it does it does a couple things like one, it looks at patterns and culture, right? And what happened then in terms of a cultural shift within this kind of white supremacist extremist um, kind of movements, and how it got solidified away from you know these you know disparate kind of militias and clan groups and all this kind of stuff into this kind of cohesive cultural narrative around white power. It's really a fascinating book and she documents it well. The thing that I found really fascinating about it is that they, these white power groups, these early white power groups were extraordinarily active on the early internet, like back when there were just message boards, right? When you actually had to kind of like know DOS and kind of like, you know, 
like send commands and all that kind of stuff. The original message boards that were, um, you know, that kind of flooded, the, you know, started kind of moving and, you know, rising in the 1980s and uh, into the, the 90s. And they recognized it early on that this was going to be a place where you could communicate and you can have this, this dispersed kind of quote unquote leaderless movement that was that was brought together through these kind of cultural means, right? And these media spaces. And again, she's talking about in this book, she's, you know, and it's incredibly documented. She's a historian. Um, it's incredibly documented. And she's looking at this period from, you know, the 1970s and 80s and the 90s. And, and then she kind of moves, comes up towards the present, kind of not quite there. And it shows you, right, what was happening then. You have a similar process that's happening now. Um, the big difference is, is that now the development of some of these networks, right? We saw Fortran and Atran and all this other kind of stuff is coming with a ton of money, right? Um, what they were doing back then, these white power groups, right? They were actually robbing banks, robbing armored cars, um, and that's how they're getting a, a good chunk of their money. Now you've got billionaires who are funneling money into these groups and to kind of helping build out those networks that allow this stuff to take place. So that's the crazy part. So anyways, what does this all have to do with everything? Well, you know, there you go. So you're having kind of these voting rights restrictions. We have a Supreme Court now that is kind of um, basically allowing Alabama to um, disenfranchise black voters. We have um, pushes here by the PAGOP in order to um, instate a map that is, you know, it represents land more than people. Um, and then we have this kind of internationalization, right, of this kind of authoritarian stuff around uh, cultural issues around masks and mandates happening in Canada. And I really do think that um, how that struggle plays out in Canada is going to be duplicated, right? I do think that is this is something to watch. So you haven't been paying attention to what's going on up there in Canada and Ottawa. Um, this is really useful to take a look at because it's going to a lot of the themes, a lot of the arguments, a lot of the sloganeering, right, and kind of say the cultural content of um, of these kind of you know these right wing protests are are we're, are going to flood the globe, <laughs> from my perspective. So, anyways, that's what we got. Um, one other thing that I thought I'd mention, you know, good. This is all stuff that broke today. That's why I say like, okay, I'm just gonna. This is what we're gonna do tonight. Um is that the National Archives, uh, people saw this, uh, retrieved fixed 15 boxes of the Trump White House documents from Mar-a-Lago, right? Um, and two things have been happening over the past couple of days. Like one, you have these, uh, it turns out that, you know, there were all sorts of boxes and bags of uh, presidential letters and papers that Trump would routinely like hand shred, which is illegal. And you had actually teams of people who were actually worked in the White House staff would have to go back and try to tape them all back together um, because that's like, you know, it's a, it's a it's a federal law. It's a crime to do that. Um, and there were other ones that were slated to put in these bags and stuff to go get burned, right, to just like, you know, to torch them all, which, again, these are these are serious federal crimes. And there's also a, apparently there's a provision in the law. I, I wish I had the, the name of the law up. There's a provision in the law that basically the Presidential Records Act, whatever that might be, that says that if there's a violation of these things, right, if there's records that are destroyed as part of this, then that person should be barred from having any future office, right? So we'll see if they're going to actually follow through with that. But so here's just a little taste of this story. So the National Archives, this is from uh, CNBC. 
The National Archives and Records Administration last month retrieved 15 boxes of White House records that had been sent to former President Donald Trump's resort home, Mar-a-Lago, instead of the National Archives as required by law, the agency said on Monday. The documents include a letter to Trump's former uh, from I'm sorry, a letter to Trump from his predecessor, President Barack Obama, as well as Trump's self-described love letters with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, according to The Washington Post, which first reported the National Archives action, citing people familiar with the story. In a statement to NBC News Monday afternoon, the National Archives confirmed that it arranged for the transport of 15 boxes of presidential records out of Trump's Palm Beach, Florida residence in mid-January, quote, following discussions with President Trump's representatives in 2021, unquote. Yeah. So there you go. Kind of fun. Here's this piece of this law. This says, uh, so all the records should have been handed over to the National Archives directly from the White House once Trump left office in January 2021, as required by the Presidential Records Act, the agency noted. That law, quote, mandates that all presidential records must be properly preserved by each administration so that a complete set of presidential records is transferred to the National Archives at the end of the administration. I, that's according to U.S. archivist um, David Ferriero. Um, in a statement. So it goes on. So we shall see. Um, we shall see where all that goes. That's just kind of yeah, another um, kind of item. One thing that I wanted to, I wanted to, I'll kind of close out on tonight is that what's remarkable to me, if you watched uh, Chris Hayes the other night, um, I think it was the, must've been the Friday night show. Um, and I'm going to space the names of the two people he had on. Um, but he, there was a journalist from um, from Las Vegas, from Nevada, um, excellent journalist, and another um, excellent journalist from the uh, from Florida, who have done great investigative work and have been uncovering, you know, exposing a bunch of stuff. Matt Gates, kind of down in Florida, in addition to all the kind of nonsense that's happening down there um, with Governor DeSantis, and then um, in Nevada. Um, they, you know, it's become, it's become a really kind of critical state. And so a lot of the kind of wheeling and dealing and kind of behind the scenes stuff and um, <clears throat> attempts at kind of doing weird things with elections, this other guy is covering. So anyways, they're having this discussion. And it was a good discussion, right? Except what, what drives me crazy is that they get to this point where they say, well, surely now that, you know, this legislator, <clears throat> this, you know, representative or whatever, I mean, has been exposed as, you know, uh, as not being Trump enough, right? Or is his switch sides of that's going to, you know, that's going to sink his, uh, sink his chances of being reelected. And like, oh yeah, because these clear, these facts are going to clearly prove it. I'm like, how can you live through the past several years and actually think that 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 the the facts being out there by themselves are going to automatically lead to kind of an automatic conclusion where this person will obviously not be um, elected. It's just insane. All the all the facts fly in the face of that kind of discussion. But it is this wishful thinking of normality, people wanting just to kind of like, oh, yeah, let's get back to the way things were. Let's get back to things when we, when these kind of scandals broke, it would sink their career. Oh, it must be, you know, finally, this is going to be the final straw. I mean, are we not sick of that narrative? Has that not been so exposed as being so utterly bankrupt as a way of thinking about it? Now, look, I am not saying that those things won't have an effect. All I am saying is this. It, 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 it's critical for the media now not to 
offer that narrative as a way of kind of making people feel like things are going to be taken care of. You can include it as part of analysis, but you should also always say, we can't guarantee that because we have been proven wrong that most of these candidates, these far right candidates have been able to stay in office. And matter of fact, have have run on their own corruption and won their seats. Come on. So anyways. Anyways, uh, that's going to be it for me tonight, everybody. Um, thank you for tuning in. Thanks for uh, kind of continued support to show and everything. I'm sorry I'm a little tired tonight. Um, it's just been kind of one of those days, as I said at the top of the show. And um, I also know that there's a, a bunch of folks who are over at the uh, Penridge School Board meeting tonight. Um, they had the school board meeting and the curricular meeting. So uh, keep your eyes on that tomorrow as that there's and later on tonight, actually, there'll be, you know, people coming out of that meeting um, with information what's going on. I know there's several folks um, who've been organizing here in the, you know, in Bucks County who are out or in, the, in the Penridge School District who are out at that meeting tonight. Um, this is after, of course, Penridge has, you know, been going after, you know, banning certain books from the kind of libraries and um, saying that, no, we're not going to follow any kind of mandates or any kind of uh, medical advice when it comes to keeping our kids safe in schools from COVID. So uh, that'll happen. So that's it. Um, remind you that on Wednesday, um, you'll we'll we'll kind of well, like I said, we'll probably release it early. We've got the uh, the show with Cyril. Um, that will drop on Wednesday and then on Friday, um, you know, keep your, <laughs> keep your ears to the ground, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, but what's going to happen on Friday, we've got, I've, you know, got a, several different options, um, about what we're going to do on Friday. Um, we might have a guest, we might have another guest host on Friday. Um, we might actually do an interview show on Friday. Um, but I'll, I'll keep you posted. So thank you all for tuning in, everybody. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, want to thank you for your support. Want to thank you for your subscriptions. Want to thank you for supporting the show. Support the show. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. Become a patron for a little five bucks a month. We'll see you on the flip side, everybody. See ya!